Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodem with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? As sports leagues begin to hold events during the COVID-19 pandemic, protocols are being put in place for media covering games and races. NASCAR was among the first leagues to return with seven National Series events in 11 days at Darlington Raceway and Charlotte Motor Speedway. Outside of the Sports Super Bowl, the Daytona 500, the first event on May 17th was the highest rated race in three years and the most watched competitive sports event since the Daytona 500 with 6.3 million viewers compared to just over 7 million for the rain-delayed Great American Race in February. After last weekend in Bristol, Tennessee, NASCAR will continue at Atlanta with a National Series triple header this weekend. Alan Kavana was the sole on-site Fox NASCAR broadcaster last Tuesday in Charlotte for the Gander RV and Outdoors Truck Series race following a longer break for the series than in their off-season. In addition to his truck pit reporting duties, he serves as a reporter for NASCAR Race Hub, FS1's daily news and update program, as well as the network's NASCAR Race Day pre-race show. He also co-hosts Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. The four-time National Motorsports Press Association Broadcaster of the Year previously worked at NASCAR.com and in local news in Charlotte, Evansville, Indiana, and Joplin, Missouri. Racing is in his blood as the grandson of a professional sprint car driver, and he himself earned a New England championship in a quarter midget. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Kavana, all one word. That's A-L-A-N-C-A-V-A-N-N-A. Alan Kavana, how are you doing today? It's awesome. It, it, I'm doing great, and it's really it's it's fun to be on with you, Stu. Thanks for inviting me. What's it been like sharing your residence and TV studio with your wife, CNN's Diane Gallagher? Uh, it's been it's been fun. Uh, we live a strange, strange life where I predominantly live in Charlotte, and she has lived here in Washington D.C. here in Atlanta and Washington D.C. Uh, during our marriage. So this has been. Uh, oddly, during this pandemic, the first time we've ever actually lived together uh, three years into our marriage. <laughs> and uh, that part has been nice. Obviously, there, there's, bad, there's terrible stuff going on in the world, but uh, to have this time together has been uh, a gift, if you will, or just certainly pleasant to, to actually live together and uh, still tolerate each other. <laughs> and so that part has been different. And not only that, uh, she, we also end up working, you know, in the same space in this one bedroom apartment because, uh, through technology, she's been able to go live a vast majority of the time, uh, from the apartment. And I've done race hub tapings from the apartment as well. And, uh, we kind of use the same equipment and, uh, move the set a little bit to make it more either racing or news related. And it's been an interesting time, uh, in our lives for certain. And, uh, but it's been nice. At least we are together. Yeah, with Cooper. And Cooper's got to appreciate having both his parents, huh? Absolutely. Cooper is our 17 and a half year old Pomeranian <laughs> and uh, someone I have clearly adopted. As she's, he's been with Diane since birth, but uh, uh, certainly he's my dog now. But uh, yeah, you know, like any dog, man, I'm sure they're just so happy to have, uh, you know, their people around all all. The, you know, all the time now for most people who have been still at home. Uh, I can't imagine what that's like as a dog because he's certainly getting a lot of attention. So I love that as well. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you mentioned what's going on right now. Diane has covered the response to George Floyd's death on Memorial Day in Minneapolis um, there in Atlanta. Xfinity driver Justin Allgaier mentioned Floyd Monday night as he put his loss in perspective. And you retweeted justice for Floyd messages from Cup rookie Tyler Reddick as, and others, as well as NASCAR's statement. And you've tweeted about local TV coverage on protests in Atlanta. Uh, NASCAR heads to Hampton, Georgia, 30 miles south of the city this weekend. Do you anticipate any additional response or impact on the event? You know, I don't really know. Um, we, we are seeing the response grow. And that that's, you know, especially a week later uh, since the incident. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, it's not only NASCAR drivers or, or you know, the sport itself, but just society as a whole. Uh, this is resonating with people, whether it be the protests and the demonstrations or, again, I mean, just the murder we saw, you know, via video of George Floyd. And uh, this one seems to be resonating more and more. So the reaction to it is lengthy. So I don't know, you know how far it extends. You know, I hope the effects of it extend for, you know, for weeks and years and generations, if you will. But, uh, you know, we've seen NASCAR itself come out with a statement, and uh, I don't know what kind of reaction. But, to, you know, for those that don't know, Justin Allgaier, a driver in the Xfinity series, uh, he was racing for a win in Bristol, Tennessee on uh, Monday night and, and kind of got taken out uh, and by a teammate. And were, what you would expect, a, uh, an angry interview, uh, you know, someone to be really pissed off, he instead channeled his emotion uh, and held back some comments just to say, look, there's bigger things going on in the world right now and referenced uh, what happened in Minnesota and referenced the, the larger things going on in the world. And that, that was frankly surprising because you would at least, I mean, just the heat of the moment, right, of a competitor. And it just shows you how far and how deep this has gone into all realms of society. And, you know, I, I hope we do see some more reaction to it. And you mentioned this is happening in the middle of a pandemic. And as one of the few media members to cover a sporting event on site during the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm wondering if we could look back at Charlotte and if you could take us through the process of getting into the facility that day. Yeah, it's certainly a most unique time I've ever spent at the tracks, Stu, and you've been there, you've been there a lot. Um, so yeah, it, it started with uh, entering the track. You know, normally we come and go as we please. We have our little cards called hard cards, and that can you know that gets you in any track, anytime, anywhere, just wh- whatever you need. You know, you're part of the traveling circus. You can do whatever you want, really. You know what I mean in terms of getting in. But this it, it was a totally different experience. Uh, the, the the track, the uh, the way it lays out. I mean, there's the NASCAR track, and then there's a long uh, drag strip in Charlotte, and you enter it at the drag strip, which is about. I mean, close to a mile away from the track, or not maybe not a mile, but a half mile, a little longer uh, away from the NASCAR track itself. And that's when you started the process. And that process included a security check, first of all, just to, you know, check your car. They had the dogs out there sniffing the cars. And then an ID check to make sure you were who you were supposed to be. And then a health check where they checked your temperature and made sure that, um, and maybe I should start before this, before you even got to the track in the days leading up, uh, Fox, anyway, uh, a strict, strict program of answering health surveys, of taking your temperature each day and making sure you record it and taking the health survey each day in the five days leading up to it. And if you didn't do that, you couldn't go. So, I mean, just strict, I mean, strict things that we've never had to do before. And when you got to the track and they took your temperature, that all that was cross-referenced 
to make sure, you know, you had been doing all the proper procedure before, you know, in the days leading up to even going there. Um, and, and then once you got there, uh, you know, you, you snake through and you were able to, I was able to drive inside the track and normally where there would just be, you know, all my coworkers and there's a big TV compound. It's like, I mean, it looks like a circus tent. I mean, that's how big it is. I mean, there's hundreds of people usually and uh, couldn't go there, didn't go out to the TV compound. I had to go right into the track and into our little hall or office space. And again, the hall, the office space in there would, you know, you would be there with your coworkers, other people, the producers, whoever, and uh, you, you were kind of isolated, uh, one person at a time, basically allowed in, you know, I had my own little private office space, if you will, because it was cleaned the night before, it gets cleaned every night, and there was a seal on it, there was a seal on the door as if like, you know, uh, you can't break the seal until the one person allowed that night is allowed in there. And uh, that, so that was odd. And uh, you know, normally we're at the track so long, they have uh, the, the part of that circus tent is, is food, you know, for everybody, you know, a couple of meals a day. Uh, it was down to one meal a day delivered to you nice and sealed and a big snack box of, of chips and whatever, uh, you know, cookies, whatever you might need in, in, a, in a sealed box with your name on it. Uh, just odd, odd and different, Stu. I, I can't even, it's hard to even describe how, how quiet a racetrack could be. And it was, it was a quiet racetrack, which is really odd. There were a few uh, production people. It looked like uh, a guy holding a mic and RF and a camera. So that those that was it. Just the four of you together. Yeah. So uh, when I wasn't kind of sectioned off on my own, uh, when it was time to go, uh, yeah, you have to go out and get your equipment. And obviously, the I mean, there there is a minimum number of people you need to to make this technically all work. And uh, so I go to over to the trailer. It's called BSI. I apologize. I don't know exactly what it stands for, but they're the ones that make sure everything gets beamed out to the world. And uh, God bless them because we need them. I mean, they're, they're so good at what they do. And that's where I kind of put my equipment on, my, uh, my microphone belt and my headset and all that stuff. And uh, they make sure everything's technically working. And then, yeah, it was a group of uh, four of us, basically. Um, normally, there's at least two pit reporters for a race, for a truck race. For a cup race, there's four. And so all most majority of these races have been uh, done with just one pit reporter. So that's one person uh, covering all 40 entries in the race. So it was a team of four of us. There was myself, a photographer, um, someone to hold um, that they, 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 we have our other little monitors. We call them a jerk cam. So we can, we can watch the race and, and see what's going on. Uh, and then the, the addition to this too was someone with a boom mic. Uh, so, you know, the, one of those long mics that they can hold out from six feet away. So if I do need to interview somebody uh, that they're holding the mic at six feet away and that's the mic they're talking into. And I kind of had to yell and project my voice to them when doing these interviews. And, and so that was different. And uh, there was one other producer there, kind of a spotter, we call him, kind of helping me gather information. And uh, so that was the team on the ground and, and uh, a limited different team. And it was interesting. Getting the information from the crews, um, Barry Landis told Sports Business Journal last night that there's an instant messenger contact that they have with teams. I don't know if you take advantage of that or how did you interact with the uh, crew chiefs and, and how did the interactions go differently than usual? Yeah. So normally uh, we have, uh, I mentioned the spotter and that's um, for me, it's a guy named Walter, a great guy from Tennessee, who's uh, we, we all have scanners, right? If you in NASCAR, uh, you can actually 
you have a scanner on your belt and you can hear, you can listen to all the team communications in NASCAR. It's unlike any other sport. I mean, you can hear every conversation with every team and every driver and every crew chief going on. So I have a scanner. I'm usually listening to say the leaders, you know, first, second place. Uh, and then the, the spotter is listening to some of the other potential good storylines. And so for, for this setup, um, I had my scanner there. I was at the racetrack. I still don't know how he's a magician, Walter, because he was in Tennessee. He was not allowed, you know, not at the racetrack yet, but he was still able to patch in to listen to all the, the scanners. And he's feeding me information via text message, uh, little notes that he would, uh, you know, write down and then send me a picture of what's going on with a certain truck. And then we had a pit producer. I believe he was in Charlotte, maybe at his home as well. Uh, also a part of that instant messenger uh, program you checked, you, you talked about, Stu. I wasn't a part of it because I'm running up and down pit road. But it, it's part of the, the bigger collaborative effort that the whole industry had to be a part of because all the PR people, again, this is uh, really inside baseball stuff, but, but during a race, you know, each driver, each team has a PR representative and uh, they, they help us, you know, during a race, uh, write down, you know, whether they made an adjustment or how their night's going or, or something we should know about each team. Well, those PR people aren't allowed at the track at the moment either. So the whole uh, collective, whether it's Fox, NASCAR, all the teams, all the manufacturers, they contribute now to this large instant message uh, program where they're all feeding information to the pit producer who then could decipher it to me or anybody really. I mean, all parts of the broadcast team, the producer, the director, but everybody can get this information in one place. And if I need some of that information, it, it gets uh, siphoned down to me via the pit producer or someone else in my ear telling me, uh, you know, you know, the, the 13 truck is having a problem with this X, Y. So, so I've got someone in Tennessee. I've got someone in Charlotte. I've got myself there. I've got a producer uh, kind of that was with me helping out, running up and down, getting uh, in-person interviews or you know, information uh, if, if we really needed it. And uh, it was such a collaborative effort. It actually worked better than a normal race, I felt, because I was getting so much information from so many different places that we were covered. It was great. Having been through it once now, is there anything you're preparing differently heading to Atlanta for the next race? Uh, no, I, going into the first race, it was just nerves of the unknown, right? You didn't know how it was going to work. And if anything, I was much more calm, um, uh, once it started, once, once we actually got back to doing the normal thing of a race, everything up until the green flag dropping was not normal, but once the green flag dropped, it was a race again. It was reporting again. It was storytelling again. Only this time I had a lot of information, uh, that to use, uh, you know, you know, you use about 5% of, of the, the thousands of things you hear during a race, but it was good to have all that information if I needed it in my back pocket. So I think I, you know, I go into the next race with maybe even a little more confidence, just knowing we've been through it once. It definitely works and we can put on a good product. And that's what we've been doing the last, what, 11, 14 days. Yeah. And after the race, you interviewed the winner, Chase Elliott, at the start-finish line. Um, Third-place finisher Zane Smith's interview on Pit Road Made TV, and your Pit Road interview with runner-up Kyle Busch was posted on Twitter. Could you describe the post-race sequence of events for those interviews? Yeah, that, that's, where, uh, that, that's where it gets tough, and we all have to you know, kind of compromise in terms of uh, no, so, you know, say if there's a compelling story between first and second place, well, when you have two pit reporters, you interview the winner and then you throw to the other pit reporter to interview second, you know, it, it's good to be as well-rounded as possible. Well, during this time, there's, there's one person on pit road. So 
uh, unfortunately, or for we just have to make it work. And normally, you know, the drivers are, are good about it. They understand the situation as well. I keep talking about the compromise and everyone having to buy in. So while I'm out there interviewing the winner, the rest of the drivers have to stick around maybe a, a little longer than, than they expect to sometimes. And, uh, but that's the procedure. And that's what happened uh, at the Charlotte race. I was out on pit road. Uh, uh, not on pit road. I was out on the track actually at the start finish line. We, we had to take a truck out there and, um, and be there there. That's the procedure has been, you know, the winner does a burnout and then we drive out in a truck, that whole crew I was telling you about, we all drive out there and uh, hop out of the truck and capture the celebration and do the interview. And meanwhile, everyone else is on pit road kind of waiting for me. So I did the interview with Chase Elliott and then it was, uh, I had to kind of move across the, the big infield there and go and get everybody else. And as I'm going there, I'm like, you know, I get the, the word in my ear. They're like, hey, you know, get to pit road. People are waiting, get there. So, you know, I start hustling, got all, all the equipment on. It's hard to run with all that stuff, but, you know, you do it. And uh, we get to Kyle Busch. And uh, for those that didn't see the race, I mean, it was, uh, it was a tough race. It was a, it was a race where Kyle had a lot of problems and he was the overwhelming favorite in this race. And he came up short, came up second. That was the whole storyline is could anyone beat Kyle Busch? And someone did. And so he was mad. He was, he owns the truck that he drives and it wasn't prepared as well as he wanted it to. It had a lot of problems. So on many levels, he was kind of ticked off, but he, he was there. He waited um, and waited for, for us to be there and do our interview and during the interview, he dropped a, a curse word, and which meant it couldn't air. You know, we couldn't we couldn't put it on television uh, right away, and that caught some people by surprise. You know, on Twitter, the, the reaction was, "Why didn't you interview Kyle?" And we had to explain later that look, it had to be edited, and so by the time it was edited, we oh, were off air, and it went online, and uh, people, a lot of people were able to see it still, fortunately. But uh, um, so yeah, we interviewed Kyle, we interviewed Zane Smith, who was a rookie who had a really good run, and we also interviewed Brett Moffitt, I believe, and so not everything can make air, unfortunately, just in the window and how things work. You know, there's only so much time in the television window, and once we hit that window, we have to go off air, and uh, we, we try to do as much as possible, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this isn't specific to the pandemic, but when you talk to a Kyle Busch, who's among the greatest talents in most polarizing drivers in the garage, and he's also now a, a great TV analyst, as we found out during the Xfinity <laughs> race at Bristol. Um, you're the first media member to talk with him after these races. Can you describe that dynamic and what you hope to accomplish in an interview after a tough loss like Tuesday night? Yeah, it's it, it's never the same, right? It, it's uh, it's always interesting, and it just comes with experience how you deal with some of these things. Because I, I always say, I mean, th there's nothing more fun than there's no better place on earth than victory lane and interviewing the winner. Everybody's happy, right? <laughs> like there, there's nothing better than a smiling, happy, fun interview because you just exude that energy, and it, it it's just in the air and it's fun. Well, on the opposite side of that, there, there's often nothing worse than the second place pissed off interview because, look, they don't want to be there in second place. You as the interviewer definitely don't want to be there interviewing the, the person in second place because you know they're pissed off. So you just try to, a lot of, you know, we've been doing, or oftentimes, you know, I've been doing this long enough where we know each other, at least, uh, you know, the driver and myself, you know, know who we are, if you will, um, in terms of what has to happen here, right? We have to get an interview out. We both know what, what goals need to be accomplished here in terms of uh, getting over as soon as possible, right? Sometimes if that's, if that's the feeling or vibe you're picking up. 
and you, you just try to be straightforward, right? You try to tell the story. You could tell, you could, Kyle's body language, you could tell he was pissed off. Uh, you know, Kyle is, is like that. He wears his emotions on the outside. And you, you just wanted to know what the story was. Like, uh, you know, he, he almost got, he almost won the race. So what more did he need, I think was my question. And uh, he answered that and, and a bunch of other stuff. But you just try to come up with a relevant question to that race, make it as straightforward as possible and uh, let it go from there. I mean, that's at least my approach. And there's never the perfect question. Uh, the easiest question and one you, you should always often go to is, you know, what happened, especially after a wreck or something um, or something, you know, somewhat controversial where it, you, if you don't know what to ask or if you don't know the perfect question, you just say, Kyle, what happened? And let them go. And uh, it's often some of the best answers. So you know, it's, it's not rocket science. I don't, ha I don't feel as if I have to, you know, pontificate or always sound like the smartest guy in the room, just uh, get their story out however you can without uh, making him too angry. <laughs> um, going into this stretch, you thought a wild card in terms of performance would be stamina for the teams. And now that we've gone through this gauntlet, um, how has the compressed schedule impacted drivers and teams and what's maybe surprised you or what's kind of something you didn't expect? Yeah, I, I, I did wonder what it would be like, you know, having so many races back to back because th there's just so much preparation that goes into a car or a race car. I mean, it's hundreds of man hours. It's crazy how how minute and, and how detailed some of these teams get. So I wondered how they were going to be able to do this. And in just, you know, reporting style, just doing my research, look a lot what I thought would be an issue, at least from what I hear from people that I ask in the garage, it really hasn't. Um in, in terms of, you know, preparation or burnout or anything like that. So that, that has surprised me that, that there was no issue really. And a lot of people just eager to get back or they had already prepared a lot. Uh, so I, I haven't, maybe I expected more just because it was such a compressed schedule. You're used to one race a week and we've done, you know, two, uh, and then with the rain, with rain outs, it, it happened, you know, that, that, that hurts the work schedule sometimes back at the shop. And so I thought there would just be more burnout or it would affect some teams, but it doesn't seem like it has. So, uh, everyone has again, bought into this odd world we're living in right now. And it seems to be working. You mentioned how things might have actually gone smoother this race. Do you think any of the changes during the pandemic will um, be kept in place under the new normal? I don't know. We might have to wait till next year to see it fully implemented. But uh, again, we're nor a, a normal NASCAR weekend can be three or four days where teams arrive on a Thursday and don't leave until late on Sunday night. And we're seeing uh, with, with this new schedule, some of these teams have, you know, they're arriving, the haulers and race cars arrive the night before, and then all the personnel don't arrive till the day of the race. And they're there for one day and one day only. And that means no practice, no qualifying, no time out on the track until you are tasked with going zero to 180 in, in no time whatsoever. And it, it doesn't seem like it's hurt anything. I'll say that at least, right? I mean, um, it's, it's up to the viewer to see it, or to say if, if, it's, if it's helped, but it certainly hasn't hurt anybody or hurt, uh, <laughs> hurt the sport or hurt the content at all or hurt the product out on the track, I don't feel, uh, that, that these one-day shows. So maybe NASCAR looks at that and says, hey, maybe we can condense the schedule. Maybe we can give our teams uh, more time you know, at their homes, not traveling, not on the road, not a night in the hotel, not having to spend an extra night on rental cars, you know, maybe in terms of cost savings, they can look at some of these things and, and 
and apply them going forward because until they were forced to do it, they didn't know if they would work or not. And it's tough to try out some of those things because change can be hard. We all know that we're humans, not just in sport in general, change is hard. But when you're forced to change and you see it working, uh, I think a lot will be taken from that. It's like any of us working at home in the no business or very few businesses would say, all right, let's go to a majority work at home staff. And because that, that's, it's revolutionary. It's crazy to think about, you know, having to do that until we all had to. And now we're seeing, oh, wait, this works, right? This, this has worked for a lot of people. We, we have kept going with people working from home. Maybe we'll do it in the future. You know, how, how quick will that change happen? I don't know, but it, it's shown us something can work. So maybe we'll see. Do you know if and when the entire Fox team will be back at the track this season? I don't. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. That's way above my head. Yeah, <laughs> um, right, uh, right. I, I just don't know. Uh, but I, I know that the focus is so on safety that um, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to speculate. I just know the dedication to safety has been so much that I can't see them just, uh, you know, going from, from, you know, one to another real quick. I would expect some sort of transition, you know what I mean? Just because it's working so far. The dedication has been there. It's so important. It was so important for the, the industry, for everybody to get this right, that uh, I would think that it's important to keep that message going. This perspective is what kind of brought me to this interview that you shared on your post Charlotte Periscope, where you said, ultimately, we are storytellers and we want good stories to tell. Um, since joining Fox, you've won multiple National Motorsports Press Association awards for spot news and event and topic-oriented features in addition to your three, three of your four Broadcaster of the Year awards. You've pinned the tweet of your interview with Jordan Anderson following his runner-up finish at Daytona in February. Over the last five years at Fox, what's been the most memorable story for you to tell? Hmm. That's a tough one because... Uh... I mean, I grew up in, you know, I grew up loving racing, right, Stu? And uh, so every story I get to tell about race cars is awesome to me. But um, one I did, oh, no, two of them I did last year has been really cool. Um, one of them was called, so in 20, 2018, is that what it was? Yeah, in 2018, there, there were three main drivers that were doing really well. Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick, and Martin Truex Jr. And they called them the big three. And that was the storyline all year, the big three, the big three. And um, so I, when, I grew, when I was growing up, I'm 37 now. So uh, you know, I really got into NASCAR racing, 1992, 1993. Uh, I loved a guy named Rusty Wallace. And in 1993, which was 25 years earlier from 2018 then, there was a different big three. It was Rusty Wallace, Dale Earnhardt, and Mark Martin. And so I, I, for some reason, I like those parallels, right? And so I wanted to tell the story of the big three from 25 years earlier. And I got to tell that story. I got to sit down, Rusty Wallace, Mark Martin, and uh, Dale Earnhardt's crew chief from that year, uh, Andy Petrie, and tell the story of what was a very memorable 1993 because it was three drivers who uh, competed their butts off back then and for, for a very memorable year that Dale Earnhardt ended up winning uh, the championship for. And so to go back and tell that story, I mean, the, the little kid in me, it was, just, was in awe because I was a huge Rusty Wallace fan. So I got to ask him specific questions about that year, about getting, uh, he had a terrible wreck at, at Talladega where he flipped like 11 times. 
And I've always blamed Dale Earnhardt for that. So I got to ask Rusty Wallace about Dale Earnhardt uh, flipping him and uh, putting him in danger. And so that was entertaining. And we got revealed stuff about Mark Martin and his year and learned a lot about Dale Earnhardt from his crew chief and what their mindset was competing with those two others. And so that was such a cool, cool story for me personally to tell. And it really resonated with a lot of people because there's a lot of cool nostalgia and old schoolness, if you will, with NASCAR fans. And that one really resonated. Yeah. And anything else? Sorry. I didn't mean to cut Oh yeah. No, no. I didn't know if you wanted to go into that one, but uh, another one from that year, was uh, it was the 20 year from 2018? Uh, it was the 20 year anniversary of Dale Earnhardt winning his Daytona 500, and one of the most memorable scenes of that. Uh, think think about this one as sports fans. If say you know if Steph Curry goes out and wins the NBA championship, all the members of the NBA don't line up and give him a high five, right? Like you would think that is absurd. Uh, Tom Brady, the entire NFL, you know, the Bills aren't lining up to give Tom Brady a high five when he wins the Super Bowl. So imagine the scene when Dale Earnhardt wins the Daytona 500. All of the teams and competitors lined up on pit road as he's doing his uh, you know, post-race kind of celebration to give him a high five. It was such an amazing sight back then that it, you can't help but stick with you. So it was my bright idea, and I'm glad they let me do it, to go back and find people who were in that line and describe it for me. Because there was surprisingly a lot of angles, a lot of good uh, just pictures from that day and storytelling uh, that could be done. And I went back and found a lot of people. Uh, Ray Evernham was in that line. Andy Petrie was in that line. It wasn't his crew chief yet. Um, who else? Uh, Tony Gibson, who's a crew chief, uh, you know, older now. And, and, but, you know, I found people who were in that line and who were able to tell me that story of what it was like to, you know, what, it, what was that look on Dale Earnhardt's face? Because you saw it. You know, most of us didn't. You touched his hand. You high-fived. I found a photographer. You know, go, it was, I got to go back and look at all the footage. You know, I took a lot of time looking like, who is that guy? Who is that guy? Who is that guy? And, you know, and I was able to, you know, use uh, through friends in the media being like, hey, look at this video and tell me who that was. Because I saw someone take a picture and I'm, you know, a, a professional photographer. They're, they're still going to have that picture. They're still going to have that story. And lo and behold, uh, you know, photographer friends were able to point out that guy, that's Ted. That's Ted Seminara. <laughs> he took that picture. And I went and found Ted Seminara, and holy crap, did he have an amazing story to tell. Did he, of course, he still had that picture. He had dozens of pictures from that moment. And, uh, you know, it's still fun to talk to him today because uh, he was in the piece. You know, we were able to tell, tell the exact moments of, of going back and, you know, what was it like? He's like, you know, because photographers often have two cameras, and he had two shots left, and he happened to catch – this perfect shot of Dale Earnhardt driving by and the grin on his face. It's like, wow. And, um, and look, Stu, I'm, I'm a vain TV person. I want to be on television <laughs> as much. I'm not even in the piece, right? Mm -hmm. I just did the interviews and I did a small voiceover and, uh, but it was still one of the best stories for me, for me personally. It's one of the best storytelling things. Um, I was ever able to be a part of. Certainly I work with amazing producers who help put it all together, but uh, to be able to tell that story. It was so fun. And uh, it's stuff like that that really gets me going. Another storytelling technique you've used on NASCAR Race Hub is the ride to work feature where you interview a racer as he drives from his home to his team shop. 
how is doing an interview while riding with the driver different than talking with them at the track? And do you learn anything new about your subjects when they're behind the wheel? Oh yeah. Uh, ride to works have been really, really fun. Just the, the concept, you know, people love cars. Everyone has to drive to work, whether it's you or me or a NASCAR driver. So that was always my premise for it. Uh, you know, you're going to work anyway, let us ride along with you. And uh, what I like about it the most is just the long form of it. I mean, some of these rides, we had one that was 90 minutes once. Uh, Joey Gase drove, Jimmy Means Racing is far out in the middle of nowhere. And so we, we drove with him for a long time. I drove with Ricky Stenhouse from Roush Racing to Darlington, which is two hours plus. It's like, oh my goodness, that's far. Uh, and neither of us are huge talkers. So that was funny. But we know we made it work. Uh, but you know what you see on television is three or four minutes. But what you can... But what you get out of doing an hour-long interview are three really good minutes, you know what I mean? And uh, that's the benefit of it, is that you, you know going into it, it's going to be a long interview. You, you know, you're going to be with each other for a long time. It's not just a 15-second soundbite. Uh, I'm a big Howard Stern fan, and one thing that he has earned and, and the benefit that he has is he has no time limit whatsoever. He can do two hours with, uh, with a musician, or I think he went two hours plus with Hillary Clinton, um, or he can do two hours with, uh, you know, what's another, and Jerry Seinfeld the other day. It, it doesn't matter. There's no time limit. And through that, you can have an actual conversation. And those conversations produce a lot of good moments just because it's more than, you know, how's your car? Or how'd you feel about this? And then it's over, right? Um, and that's the benefit of doing those ride to works is that you really get into a good conversation and you get in depth. And you just get a lot more relaxed and through relaxation comes really good answers and, and a good understanding of stories. Another form of storytelling that you started last year with David Smith, Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm wondering why did you start that show and what can listeners learn from it? Yeah, so this is really nerdy stuff. <laughs> but um, uh, David Smith is, uh, I'm just trying to figure out the best way to approach this. So for sports fans in baseball, um, you know, there, there's strikeouts and there's batting average. And then there's, there's another level of, of stats that, that, that fans love to get into, right? If you're really into baseball, if you really love it, you, you love analytics, you know, these newfangled terms like called wins over replacement or on-base percentage or uh, strikeout efficiency, stuff like that. You know, if you really want to understand the sport you love better, there, there's this whole group of, uh, of kind of just kind of, I call them nerdier things, but, you know, like there's this nerdier set of data that you can really understand the game and the sport with, and people love it. Uh, you know, same thing with football, whether it's like third down efficiency or, um, you know, red zone uh, under two minutes, uh, whatever, you know, completion percentage. I mean, you can really dive in and understand the sport and it makes you a smarter fan, which helps you, I don't know, it can help your fantasy team or it just helps you, you know, sound smarter when you're trying to predict something to your buddy next to you while you're watching the game. Like, oh, I know this trend. I know what this quarterback's going to do. So I say all that because in NASCAR, there really isn't that, or we don't talk about it as much. The net, you know, we talk about wins, we talk about laps led or top fives, top tens. We don't talk about the, this other set of data or this nerdier set of data that you can really dig down and get into. And there's one person I feel that, that, that champions all this. And basically, I feel like almost invented it for the sport. And that's my buddy, David Smith. He is ultimately a writer, but he is an analytics guru, I call him. And he has a website called Motorsports Analytics. It came from him being a um, uh, 
what, what a minute, not a coach, uh, <laughs> a scout. I'm sorry. Yeah, it scout. came from him. He worked for teams as a scout. He would go on a, a on a local level and try to find uh, and scout the next prospect for racing. And in his mind, it was how do I tell how good a driver is absent his equipment? Because in, in racing, equipment means that you know if you have a lot of money and you have great equipment, you're going to go fast. The car is going to be fast. Uh, but what is, but what is the driver contributing to that? You know, what if a, a driver is, how can you tell if a driver's good in, in less expensive equipment? And David was able to come up with stats and, and, and measurements that, that really show and shine and separate driver from equipment and how good of a passer you are pass efficiency. Do you make a pass in one lap or does it take you two or three? I mean, David has metrics for this and he's been doing it for years. And I've been, and for years I've been a fan because I wanted to be a smarter reporter. I wanted to be a smarter race fan. Well, so fast forward a little bit when David and I, you know, get to be friendly and friends with each other because I really enjoy his work. Um, I think it was him who pitched the idea of a podcast and I was all in because if anything, I felt I could learn more myself, but I also felt for race fans, for that type of fan, that type of baseball fan that wants to know more about, you know, wins above replacement and all those things I mentioned, I think there is a thirst for that amongst racing. And if there isn't, we're going to give it to you anyway, and you're going to learn to like it because it really does help you make become a better race fan. And the only thing it needed, I felt, was a translation. And, and David, uh, I think, kind of felt that too in terms of some, some of this stuff is really in the weeds. It's hard to understand. But if I could be there and, and be like the translator, if you will, to what David was talking about and why it matters and how you can watch it on your screen every Sunday, what we're talking about and apply it to your view, your viewing habits. Uh, that, that's how I feel my role is, right? I mean, I study his data. I ask him questions and I try to extrapolate uh, and put it in English, if you will, what, what people can use from it. And uh, it's not a huge audience yet, but I think it's a, it's a smart, positive audience. We have a lot of fans in the garage, crew chiefs, engineers, they love the stuff we talk about. And uh, some of the more engineer type drivers, they love the stuff we talk about. And because it, it does take a little wrap your head, wrap your mind around. But when you, when you see it play out on your screen, it's like a light bulb goes off. You're like, wow, they talked about that. And I'm seeing this driver do it. And uh, it's cool. It's, it still it amazes me every week. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. So old school, new school storytelling. And Next, NASCAR announced a partnership with Facebook's new product experimentation team as the first partner for Venue, an app to enhance the live event experience. And I understand you'll be participating. Do you know which race you'll be doing and what should fans expect from the app? I don't know for sure. I think it's going to be the Talladega race on June 21st, which will be cool because Talladega is always an awesome race. And uh, yeah, this is, I mean, this is, again, you, you presented it correctly, Stu. I mean, Facebook, uh, it's, it's an app called Venue. It's, uh, it's something new they're trying, and they've asked a few of us in, in the industry to kind of be a part of and help, help them test it, right? I mean, it's basically a user experience that while we're all watching at home on TV, uh, you know, we can interact. You can interact with me while, and while we're watching the race together, essentially, and I could share my thoughts and, and kind of explain what I'm thinking as a, 
as a professional while I'm and a fan really as while I'm watching a race like Talladega, uh, we can have chats and uh, I could throw up a poll, you know, if there's an accident, you know, whose fault was this or what do you think? Uh, it's something new. It's something different. They're trying. I mean, it's still being tweaked. It's in, it's in the, I guess the testing phase, you would call it. They, they just started it last weekend with the, um, where were we? Oh, we were at Bristol <laughs> for right, the yeah. Bristol race. <laughs> and it's, I know we've had so many races lately. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's interesting. You know, there was a lot of good feedback so far. And uh, I think for me personally, it's just learning how much goes into developing all this technology and a new app and how much you have to test it and how much they value the feedback. You know, th there were some negatives to it that people didn't like but they, they value that more than the positive feedback, right? Because they're, they're trying to make it as good as possible. And I just don't, I mean, this is another world for me, like, you know, app development or whatever. I was like, look, I, I can handle the racing part. I can love and, and would love to talk with people during a race exclusively, you know, in, in, this, in this format. And so I'll definitely help there. But, you know, I don't know much about the technology side of it. And they're like, no, you just handle the racing part. We'll handle the technology side and just give us feedback. And uh, so it's a whole new process that I've never been a part of. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, you talked about a couple stories you did in 2018. And also in that year, you learned that your grandfather made one cup series start at Thompson Speedway 60 years ago. Uh, he passed away in 1994 when you were 11, but what influence did he have on your career? Again, knowing that you won a quarter midget championship in Connecticut. Yeah. So the only reason, I mean, I love racing because I come from a family of racers. Um, my grandfather was a uh, sprint car champion or dirt car champion in New England. Um, and I, I know, I don't know. I wish I knew, I wish I knew the full details, right? You know, you always wish you could learn more. He died when I think uh, when I was 11, 11 years old. And, um, but I mean, just the more you hear about it, I mean, back then, uh, he was on basically what would have been the IndyCar path. I mean, he would have been an Indy 500 racer and, you know, circumstances back then, you know, I come from a large family farm that, that had to be taken care of and that, that <laughs> he was the primary guy to do that. So, but he was a racer, man. And, um, and that, that my dad raced quarter midgets, which means it felt, and my cousin and I then raced quarter midgets after that. Uh, so, you know, it's just, it trickles down in the bloodline and that's a large part of racing as a whole is the family line of it all. But, um, so th that was just so neat. You know, my, my home is surrounded by pictures of my grandfather in his race car, which is so cool to hear. And then lo and behold, someone pointed out, there's a great, um, website, racingreference.info that, that everyone in the industry uses it. I mean, I'm on there every day, but I never thought to search my grandfather's name because it's primarily NASCAR based. And someone did, someone searched my grandfather, my grandfather's last name and it popped up. He made one NASCAR cup series start and no one in my family ever knew this. It was amazing. And he did it at Thompson Speedway. We're from Connecticut and Thompson's in Connecticut. And uh, it was just, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe he made a cup, you know, I'm a grandson of a cup series driver and I never knew it until uh, a few years ago. And then lo and behold, uh, Kyle Ricky over at MRN, the, the radio um, broadcasters for NASCAR, uh, he's, you know, he's from Connecticut as well. And he's really ingrained in Thompson's history. Uh, you know, he found a picture of, from that race. There's video of that race. I don't think you can see my, I mean, it's really grainy, but there is video from that day, from that race on YouTube. It was like, holy crap, this is so cool. And uh, so that was a really cool moment for not only for me, but for my family. Uh, we never knew 
that he made an official Cup Series start and, uh, in 1951, a few months before my dad was born, I believe. Uh, maybe I, I might have that wrong. He might be a few years. He might have been four months old. I'm sorry, I'll go back. But um, it, it was unreal to think about that, yeah, he was a Cup Series driver too. It was neat. So with that seed planted, I was kind of surprised that it wasn't until 2003 that you attended your first NASCAR race while you were a student at Syracuse University. You were a production assistant for Fox's broadcast team of Mike Joy, Daryl Waltrip, and Larry McReynolds. What do you remember from that weekend at Dover and the following weekend at Pocono? And at that point, did you already realize you wanted to be a sports broadcaster? And, and I guess, was that the impetus behind going to the, those races? Yes, I'd been wanted, I've wanted to be a sports broadcaster for a long, long time. Probably started in about sixth grade. So if we fast forward to 2003, I'm already at Syracuse, and I only went to Syracuse because I wanted to be a broadcaster, mm -hmm. right? I, I'd heard, uh, I, I remember hearing, you know, when I was young, about in sixth grade, it was in sixth grade because uh, I would grow up, you know, every morning, someone of my age, um, you know, again, I'm 37, you know, grew up in that era of Sports Center, where Sports Center was, you woke up in the morning and you watched those halcyon days of Sports Center, where it was Dan Patrick, Keith Olbermann, uh, early Scott Van Pelt, Craig Kilborn, Rich Eisen, you know, those, Linda Cohn, Bob Lee, you know, all those people. Uh, those were the people you woke up with every morning before having your cereal before going to school. And so it was like, oh, I want to be one of those people. <laughs> and then it happened to be that year, Syracuse, 96, um, uh, a little later, 96, Syracuse went to the Final Four. And I remember Dick Vitale just mentioning, oh, baby, I know all those Syracuse people at ESPN are going crazy. And once I heard that, I was like, I got to go to Syracuse. Like, I knew nothing about the school. Like, I knew I never liked Syracuse at all. But once I heard that, I was like, oh, man, I got to go there now. And uh, luckily I did. And uh, so I went there. And uh, it's good, great, tele best television school, uh, you know, in the world. So, and then, so, yeah, okay. So fast forward to 2003, I'm a junior in um, – in college and you know well you know trying to position myself for a good television career and one of the best things about Syracuse again yeah is the alumni base and one of the alumni was a gentleman named Ed Gorin at the time Ed Gorin is the president of Fox Sports and I see this and I'm like and he's speaking like he's doing a speaking engagement for all the us wannabe TV people <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm like yeah I you know skip class got to go to this and uh you know, I, like the I bring a VHS tape of my work because clearly, you know, I'm this college kid who's never done anything professionally and done a few college. Clearly, my work is going to impress the uh, the president of Fox Sports. Like clearly, and um, uh, I hope this isn't too long of a story, Stu. But um, it was uh, so. Yeah, he does. He, he's doing his his talk and. Again, I'm surrounded by people, you know, like myself that want to be on television and hope to do something like this one day. And he questioned, you know, he ends his presentation and he goes, any questions? And no one raised their hand. I'm like, wow. oh, my God, no one's asking this guy any questions. So I raised my hand. Now, a little more backstory. This is 2003. A few months earlier, the Daytona 500 had been rain shortened. Uh, you know, the race had started, they made it past halfway and it started raining. And that night happened to be the 300th episode of the Simpsons. Mm -hmm. So if they keep the race going, 
it's, you know, in theory, it's going to bump the Simpsons out of its 8 p.m. time slot. So, so this is well before Twitter and everything, but there were message boards. So they, they, they canceled the race. They ended the race early and declared Michael Waltrip the winner. So there was some, there, were, there was pissed off people and there were, there were theories that they ended the race because they didn't want to have to move the Simpsons that night. So with no one asking any questions, I raised my hand and I said, did you end the Daytona 500 early so you could show the Simpsons? And he looks at me and he goes, no, smart ass. And we got a laugh and I was like, oh. and then it, but that got the, the ball rolling for some other questions. But so after it, I, I went up, I had this, you know, one of those big bubble packages with my VHS tape in it. And I was like, Mr. Gorin, my name's Alan Kavan. And he obviously remembered me from my question. And I said, you know, I really want to work in NASCAR. Here's my tape. And he looks at my tape with like disgust. He's like, don't give me that. I'm not going to watch that. But I will give you my business card. And he gives me his business card in front of everybody. It was like, I was like the coolest person on the planet at that moment. Gives me his business card and says, hey, you want to work at a NASCAR race? Uh, you know, call this number. We'll set it up. And holy crap, Stu, it worked out. Mm -hmm. A few weeks later, uh, I'm at my first NASCAR race ever. I never went to one growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, I was busy racing every weekend. And despite mm -hmm. lo loving racing, I never actually went to a NASCAR race. So the first race I ever went to was uh, was the, the NASCAR Cup race in Dover. And I'm in the boot. My job was to be a production assistant, which was basically a runner, filling the food bowl for the guys in the booth. So think of this as a lifelong racing fan. The first time I ever see a race, I'm literally in the broadcast booth with Mike Joy, Daryl Waltrip, and Larry McReynolds. And that's how I spend my weekend, uh, also filling the food booth or filling the food bowl. <laughs> but still, uh, it was amazing. You know, I was a part of the TV crew. I was in that circus. We, I started off mentioning the circus tent. That, that's where I was, you know, as this uh, college student for the first time ever. You know, it's like I'm a part of the team. It was crazy. And I got to do it for that weekend in Dover and the next weekend in Pocono. And then a year later, I got to do it again in Pocono. Um, it was, uh, it was, it's nuts to go back and think about that. I now call all these guys, my coworkers all these years later, but that's how I got my start. That's awesome. A full circle moment. I appreciate that story. Um, so you're going back to the track this weekend uh, for the truck race uh, on Saturday. There's the Xfinity race following it. Will you be working that as well? Or was there another team that'll come in and do that one? No, uh, tentatively, I believe uh, Jamie Little was going to do the whole weekend. And mm -hmm. this is part of the evolving, in the evolving schedule of this all, right? I mean, as I said before, you know, normally it's four people that do a cup race and to have it down to one, that's a lot. I mean, and yeah. so I think you've seen like in the Coca-Cola 600, they, they brought on a second person, a second pit reporter, just because it is a lot of work. And, th and that wasn't, that wasn't an easy decision to make. The, the crew was so limited because of safety that, I mean, tough decisions have to be made in terms of, of bringing another person to the track. And so, um, so I think originally Jamie Little was going to do all three uh, because Saturday is a double header. Uh, I think the plan is work is trending toward me doing the truck race and her doing the Xfinity race to, to give some relief because that's, right. first of all, it's a, you know, 40 teams in two different series, one day running up and down pit road for two different races. That's just, it's a lot. It's a lot of storytelling. It's a lot to keep up with. So uh, I, I think you'll see, hopefully you'll see myself and you'll definitely see Jamie Little in Atlanta. Any other features or upcoming projects we should stay tuned for? Uh, just watch Race Hub every night. Um, yeah. uh, I'll be doing, you know, we're, we're, I'm still able to tape Race Hub segments from home. Uh, every race winner, uh, we're kind of doing a rotating uh, interview schedule of, you know, we're all interviewing the race winner. 
for the, the Monday race, if you will, or the, the day after the race, we call it the winner's wrap up. We do a lengthy interview. <clears throat> we do a lengthy interview with uh, the winner of the, the race from the night before. So those are fun. I have a segment called the A-List, which is kind of like my interview segment. Those will come back uh, even from afar. Uh, this week it's Christopher Bell and it, it just kind of uh, depends on uh, the storylines of that week. But uh, yeah, the A-List will be back starting every Tuesday <laughs> on Race Hubs, but just watch Race Hub every night, uh, 6 p.m. on FS1. And then are there any items you'd like to check off your broadcasting bucket list? Uh, sure. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to Sundays, right? I mean, it's yeah. a, life is a ladder climb, right? No matter yeah. where you are. Um, you know, I always wanted to be on television, you know, check that off. I wanted to get to Charlotte, check that off. Uh, I wanted to, you know, cover NASCAR full time. Uh, this is the time, Stu, I, I mean, I owe a lot to you. And I, uh, I don't know if I ever respectfully and properly thanked you because uh, pull the curtain back some more when I wanted to transition from news to full-time NASCAR. This was my life goal to cover NASCAR full-time. NASCAR.com revamped itself. And Stu, you were a huge part of that. And you had to hire one person to be the video reporter and uh, you chose me, Stu. And uh, that, I can never thank you enough properly because it, it helped make me make that transition. And, um, you know, between you and our coworker, Kate Davis, uh, I w I'm forever grateful that you, uh, you chose me to be a part of that. And it set me on a great path. So, so thank you for that, Stu. Well, your passion makes it easy. I think people listening to this will hear that. So um, it's, it was great to work with you and great to reconnect here and um, really appreciate your time and your perspective in this new world of going to the track and uh, nobody better to, to bring that to us than you, Alan. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Cavana, all one word. Saturday at Atlanta, watch the Gander RV Outdoors Truck Race at 1 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and the Xfinity Race at 4.30 on Fox. On Sunday, the Cup Series races at 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox and Fox Deportes. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. We're also available on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and at Believe Podcasts on social media. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.